Hey all, welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And today we are taking on Barbie and Oppenheimer, and I hope we'll have a few words to say about the social media phenomenon known as Barbenheimer, um, which has been delightful. Um, <laughs> the much memed about fascination, which is swirling around the same day release of writer-director Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer and writer-director Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Oppenheimer is about, I know this is Captain Obvious stuff, but I feel like I need to say something, contextualizing it. Yeah. Oppenheimer is about the physicist Robert J. Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, as he's often known. And it's based on a 2005 best-selling biography called American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. It's a prestigious epic scale bio- biopic um, shot with IMAX cameras and, of course, ideally meant to be seen in IMAX, or at least that's the that's the hype. Um, with audiences urged to, yeah, and and very much, you know, everyone's on board, you know, <laughs> um, urging audiences to think seriously about this serious, serious film afterward. Barbie is the first of what threatens us, uh, threatens to be a series of films based on Mattel um, company toys, including Hot Wheels, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, Magic 8 Ball, Chatty Cathy. And it's Barbie has been kicking around for years, almost 10 years in various forms of development with different directors. Amy Schumer was one of the writer directors and stars Anne Hathaway was being considered for a while. Um, Attached before indie film auteur Greta Gerwig signed on and turned it into a comedy of feminism light using so much pink in the production design that there was a much reported worldwide shortage of pink paint. I don't know if that's true. I like to think it's true. Um, <laughs> anyway, so we're gonna we have tons to talk about, and this is so much talked about, and we're a little late to the game. But I feel like it's doing such incredible business, and more and more people going all the time, and then reporting, feeling like they have to report what their what their experience is. That yeah. it doesn't seem like it's too late at all. I mean, already Barbie. I think the latest stats are Barbie has made seven hundred fifty million worldwide, and Oppenheimer has made four hundred million. <laughs> and the, 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 the Barbie is setting records all over the place. Um, but let's start with Oppenheimer first, and then we'll go to Barbie. Um, and, yeah. and Dolores and I have not yet talked about this. I mean, I wrote reviews for Jackman, but I, I, I haven't talked to Dolores about what her views are. So dying to know. So, so Dolores, your take on Oppenheimer. Okay, so, well, it's not too late to talk about this. The theater in Oakland, the Grand Lake, is showing both Barbie and, Oppen- Barbie and Oppenheimer, and it's all a, blood, all a buzz. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, let me put it this way. I cried at Barbie, but not at Oppenheimer. <laughs> I didn't cry at either, but, you know, that's the kind of gal I am. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Oppenheimer was forgettable. I've forgotten most of it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I don't know. Which is a nice take because it's the one the one I have not read is someone just simply saying yawn. I haven't I haven't read that. But carry on. Oh, you bet. And an hour and fifteen minutes in, I checked my watch and I was like, dear God, <laughs> like almost two more hours. Um, I don't know. I have things in the margins like this is the highest praise I can muster. Um, I wrote this to myself: grateful for no childhood stuff. Um, <laughs> Seventy millimeter looks good. Um, <laughs> did you see it in IMAX? Because I did. I actually didn't. I did not see it in IMAX, but the Grand Lake in Oakland did show it in 70 millimeter. And 
I I didn't like I was like kind of unconscious of it until like partway through and I was like why does this feel nice <laughs> why does this feel like <laughs> like a bath for my eyes and I was like oh it's not like super high definition you know whatever mm-hmm. I was, it, it looked it was lovely and, yeah. and soft <laughs> and, yeah. um okay I think uh, back to business mm. <laughs> um, I don't the film is tricky about its opinion on Oppenheimer. <laughs> Mm. And it makes it puts the trickiness onto the shoulders of the protagonist himself. Um, And at the end of the day, you kind of see that or it suggested that Oppenheimer is aware of how he may be remembered. That's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons he agreed to be sort of martyred by Mm -hmm. uh, a secret not really a trial, kind of like a, a board review of his mm-hmm. security clearance in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it becomes sort of clear by the end that uh, he understands that someday this will all come out and he will look pretty good by appearing to have moral <clears throat> uh, moral concerns about the atomic bomb. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I just can't stand it. Carry on. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what to say. Um, so <laughs> throughout it, it's really weird. Like you get uh, one of the opening incidents is Oppenheimer at Cambridge uh, nearly poisoning his yeah. instructor. He injects cyanide into an apple because his instructor has been kind of a dick um, mm-hmm. and made him stay in the laboratory as a punishment for being sort of slow in the lab uh, instead of going to a lecture. And that seems like a pretty asocial thing to do. Oh, can I just interject? There's this because Oppenheimer's, is it son? I think it's his son or grandson, is objecting strenuously to this. Isn't it a matter of historical record? Well, two different biographies that I know of have reported this. Not only yeah. the American Prometheus one that everyone's talking about and now rushing off to read, but there's another by Ray Monk. I can't remember if that's the same, if, if the title's Stoppenheimer or what, who reports not only that, but another incident, um, not so much in his youth, where he he is race, has a, a young woman, a date in his car and decides to race a train. He's literally a professor teaching already at Berkeley when he does this, yeah. according to this account. And how, how, it's a little unclear in what I read how, how it winds up, but she winds up being knocked unconscious and, is, and there's a certain amount of outrage and that supposedly his, his parents, who are quite wealthy, he's a rich kid, mm-hmm. um, uh, paid her off with a Cezanne drawing and another painting from Oppenheimer's father's very nice oh. And so twice they got him, supposedly, if you believe the account of the poisoned apple, even though it wasn't cyanide, I don't think. It was just some other chemicals from the lab. Um, the parents had to come over to, to England to square it again when, when he got into that trouble. And, and I forget how, he, how they got him, from, kept him from being expelled. But no, yeah. two different biographers report this, but I think it's the son or the grandson. It just says it, it, there's no proof. Mm. But okay. for me, it's the the thing I regret about the chi- no childhood stuff is there's no sense of him being is coming from serious wealth. So much of the Oppenheimer hubris uh-huh. can be attributed, I think, to him being a princeling who's not only brilliant but rich and you know kind of untouchable. <laughs> His parents are going to come and bail him out no matter what he does. So that seems to me a ring an Oppenheimer wrinkle that would have been so great to explore if you decided to really explore it. But instead we get this weird soft, well, according to Nolan, 
uh, it's a kind of semi-first person um, Oppenheimer, all the stuff in color. It's supposed to be uh-huh. kind of colored by Oppenheimer's own sense of himself, and the script was actually written in first person. So Killian Murphy reads the script and says, I've never seen a script that was all like, right. I walk into the room, I confront Louis Strauss, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was very deliberate that we were getting a kind of Oppenheimeranian <laughs> um, <laughs> take on himself whenever it's in color. And then you go out to the larger world of black and white for the Louis Strauss um, appointment hearing. Yes. Where he doesn't make, he doesn't, he isn't allowed to be on Eisenhower's cabinet after all in the end. But anyway, sorry, long interruption. I just want to. Oh, no, it's, I mean, keep him coming. Totally. um, uh, By the end, I was, I think the film wanted to have it both ways. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It very much wanted to, you know, acknowledge the disastrousness of the atomic bomb. And in fact, the film ends, uh, spoilers galore, obviously, everyone. So stop. Stop now if you haven't seen the films and you don't want them spoiled. But the film ends by revealing an earlier conversation that Oppenheimer has with Albert Einstein at Princeton. Mm -hmm. This conversation is like um, hidden from us at the beginning. It's revealed to us at the end. And all that's um, admitted really is that Oppenheimer's aware that he set off a chain reaction um, that will probably destroy the world. Uh, If not literally, uh, that was one of the literal worries about setting off the first atomic bomb that it would set off a chain reaction of exploding neutrons that would never end. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, um, the invention of the bomb a- accomplishes that in another way. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, um, metaphorically, human beings um, in their non-wisdom amp up an arms race that Oppenheimer feels will inevitably lead to the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so he admits that at the end, but there are more interesting things in the middle that aren't explained or explored. There's the uh, cyanide incident or the, the poisoning incident yeah. uh, that's like never returned to. Mm-hmm. Um, Oppenheimer gets to become a pretty decent guy. And not only, yeah, he has leftist uh, politics, but they're soft peddled because this is the United States. And mm-hmm. He does. It's made very clear that he never joins the Communist Party, mm-hmm. um, and in fact, his association with communism is more explicitly anti-fascist than it is explicitly communist. Although he is pro-union, all of these things, which are extremely safe for an American audience, okay to be pro-union, okay to be anti-fascist, mm-hmm. um, and it's also emphasized that um, he made the bomb to fight Hitler because he was Jewish and mm-hmm. felt threatened, and that comes up throughout the film. Um, But what is kind of, uh, what only comes up very briefly, and in this sort of like uh, hearing about his security conference in the 50s, -hmm. um, and what is voiced by this tremendously unsympathetic sort of mad dog, um, you know, red baiting prosecutor, Mm -hmm. um, is that, isn't it disingenuous to say to that, you know, after Hitler kills himself, um, that, you know, you uh, don't want the bomb that you are making to be used. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, after all, you continued the project, did you not, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And he, you know, sort of has to admit to that, but it's coming from such an unsympathetic voice um, that it's kind of like that very interesting, important question Mm -hmm. becomes eclipsed by all of the sympathy that we have for Oppenheimer and his deep thoughts. And of course his admission to the equally uh, much more sympathetic and beloved Albert Einstein at the end, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that he doesn't, uh, that he feels bad. (laughs) Um, I don't Mm -hmm. know. Um, 
I, when I, looking I, at the story of an individual who who feels bad, I guess yeah. Uh-huh. If, you, if you lead the team that creates the atomic bomb and they drop it and millions of people die, I guess you're going to feel kind of bad. That hardly <laughs> seems revelatory. I just this this movie drove me insane for that reason. Why would that? Except it's such an American approach. It all has to be about an individual. That's what mm-hmm. really matters. So that's why we we're not going to show anything of like documentary footage of I don't know Hiroshima, Nagasaki, any representation. Of what actually happened? No, you get you get Oppenheimer vision of him walking through a charred corpse and mm-hmm. imagining he sees flaying skin comes off coming off faces of his cheering audience, mm-hmm. and you have to go with that as like I've even read um, reviews by critics claiming that's the more chilling and effective way of representing it, right? To suggest else. it is unrepresentable, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> crazy. Another Manola Dargis in New York Times uses the famous Francois Truffaut quote about how there's no way to represent war, even if you're a pacifist, without glorifying it. Well, of course, what Truffaut meant was war has so much that's kinetic and exciting. If you're going to do battles and explosions and the drama of people dying and their comrades dying, yes, you're going to wind up glamorizing it. Not if you show the, (laughs) if you show footage of what happens after you drop the atomic bomb, that is not going to be war glamour footage. Right. He uses that quote to say, yes, yes. How wise of Nolan. I mean, it's like everyone, Nolan's publicist. I totally. Dictation from the man. You might as well. I've read so much just kind of windy, vague, nothing, blather about how complex this is. And we get such a sense and we get, we get, we understand so much more. And I'm like, what do you understand? What is the insight? This really makes you think about what? What? What Yeah. Exactly. And you're so right. My my biggest quibble, or not even quibble, hatred of this film is it seems to constantly veer off from exactly the points that seem most interesting and that most need to be investigated. Mm-hmm. It happens yeah. over and over. And once again, like with every biopic, I swear to God, it's the worst form. If you read any of the details of what actually went on, they're so much better. Like yeah. when Einstein tried to persuade Oppenheimer not to do the insane thing of going before that kangaroo little court. He just said, there's no reason to subject yourself. It was 54. By that point, it had been years of HUAC hearings. Mm-hmm. People were fleeing the country to avoid having to appear before these. No, no good was going to come of it. So he tells him, do not go. You know, you have various yeah. protections built in. The, the Academy stood behind him. You know, this is how he allows. He, he goes on writing. He goes on lecturing because, you know, the academic world will not stand for <laughs> him being yeah. totally blackballed. So he goes on with a career after this. All they don't show this, of course. They make it sound like he goes to Elba and is totally exiled or something. <laughs> but but anyway, Einstein said after Oppenheimer said no, I'm going to appear. He went he went by. It was his an assistant of his, and he went by and he said, "There goes a nar, which is N A R R, which is German for fool." Ugh. There goes an idiot. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, why does he go? And your explanation is the best one I've heard. Yeah, like he kind of knows he's going to be martyred. It's going to be the passion of, you know, St. Oppenheimer. Mm -hmm. And he will then be looked at kind of weirdly sympathetically, belatedly or something like that. That makes the most sense of anything I've heard. If I were going with my rich kid thesis, I'd think some part of him believes he's too important a man. He's too untouchable. (laughs) There's nothing, nothing really bad can happen to him or something like that. I would have maybe bought that. But as it is, you're just watching such soft waffling around that it's like, I don't know what we're, who is this guy? I have no idea. 
We have no idea. Uh, and I got my thesis from an exchange between Kitty Oppenheimer and Op at the end. Oh, um, mm-hmm. you know, and she's kind of like, "Why? Why did you do that?" <laughs> oh, yeah, she keeps saying, "Why didn't you fight? Why didn't you over and over? Why do you get all soft and pitiful?" Yeah. Yeah, and and she basically says, you know, um, do you think the world will forgive you if you martyr yourself? It won't. And he says, we'll see. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought that was evidence that he had oh, yeah, some awareness right. that he might be re- redeemed, you know. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know what the film's opinion on Oppenheimer is as a man. Well, doing that, he's such a great man, citizen, you know, or he's such a big man, rather. A kind, I even sort of speculated in my review, is there a kind of Citizen Kane-ish thing happening? Ah, uh, yeah. And like Elwell said, you can never really know anybody. Even though we study him from the point of view of all of these different people who knew him, there's always this sense of the, it's, there's a void where you, where, that you kind of can't know. But, you know, perhaps. even so, perhaps, exactly. I still come <laughs> away with a much clearer idea, even given that, of what's going on with Charles Foster Kane, partly modeled on William Randolph Hearst, mm-hmm. than you ever do of Oppenheim. Because partly because he locates him in material reality. Mm-hmm. It comes from poor working class Colorado family is suddenly elevated by a mining bonanza to wealthy. He gets snatched away from his, you know, he's, you know, Wells was a serious leftist. Mm-hmm. He gets snatched away from his family, his roots, his community, and he gets raised, as Wells always put it, by a bank. This is what mm-hmm. you get when a kid is raised by a bank. Uh-huh. A banker is his guardian. Um, so, so it went, as you go through all the convolutions and, and seeming contradictions of Kane, they all actually do cohere quite well. I feel like you get a very strong sense of what was driving Kane in, in what seem, might seem to be contradictory directions. You know, he's, he's a super lefty champion of the people for a while, and then he goes totally right wing and is a supporter of Mussolini and Hitler briefly. Mm-hmm. You know, all of, he does the same kind of traveling through the, the, va- the polit- wild political swings that we set, see with Oppenheimer. We see Oppenheimer go from, okay, you know, supporting Spanish civil, sending funds. He's very pro-union, very active about it, apparently, to making this wild jingoistic speech after the dropping of the bombs to say, well, I bet Jap- Japan didn't like that. And if only Hitler were alive, we could have dropped it on Germany, too. You know, he gives mm-hmm. this very rah-rah um, speech that's supposed to show what a patriot um, he was. And that gets thrown into the mix, too. But there's still you just come out of it and it's just so cloudy. And and frankly, Killian Murphy, who I think is great in general, I'm just like, I don't know what you're doing half the time. Totally. <laughs> I, 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 I love looking at him. At him. He's oh, like he's, he's, he's so photogenic. You can stare yeah. at him forever. But he seems to be deliberately doing a kind of, to me, blank eyed thing. Mm-hmm. He's try- he seems to be trying to be opaque for a lot of the time in a way that I just don't get. I don't get what the point is. It's true. It's like the film's view of his genius is just like it is a it's almost an inevitable result of the time. Like he shows him listening to Stravinsky and looking at Cubist paintings, (laughs) you know, (laughs) yeah, reading the wasteland almost all at the same time. Exactly. He's he's the modern man. Yeah. And it's like nuclear fission is just one more revolution in Mm -hmm. aesthetics that, um, it, it, again, there's a sense of like inevitability. Um, and in that it's impersonal and it's, there's no morality to it. It's no one's fault. He Mm -hmm. is just the deliverer of the fire, I guess, (laughs) to take the Prometheus myth to its conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, he's the bearer of this. And I, you know, I don't know if I agree or disagree with that. What's confusing is that this, the stakes of the film, the structure 
is uh, all about moral judgment. I mean, there are it, trials interwoven, yeah. right? So that to me means <laughs> that the film should have some opinion on the morality of Oppenheimer mm. if it's framed with a trial about his morality. <laughs> and here's the weirdness. Not only is it the little, it's not supposed to even be a trial. It's supposed to be a little hearing yeah. to, whether or not to renew his or revoke his security clearance. And of course it's, but it's fixed. It's, you know, it's already decided. It's mm-hmm. crooked and all that jazz. They mean to blackball him as a commie. Um, so that's part of it. And it's, it's you know, flashbacky all over the place. You're always cutting back and forth. But, and then the, in the black and white section with Strauss's, the hearing to hear to, to what they think initially is, you know, just a shoe in. He's supposed to be confirmed to be what now secretary of commerce, I think under mm-hmm. Eisenhower. And all of a sudden that gets, that gets thrown into question. So they and they take place. I had to look this up. One, one is in 1954. I guess the film that makes that clear. That's Oppenheimer's little little hearing. Mm-hmm. Strauss's is, is in 59. Um, so there's this kind of payback feeling, like you know the way the way Oppenheimer gets railroaded comes back to bite Strauss, and you find out again these spoilers all over the place. Much is made of the of the reveal that Strauss is the man who who does this, who basically puts the finger on Oppenheimer for destruction yeah for me that's just fundamentally so like really do are we supposed to care are we supposed to find that like oh my god not strauss are we really is that really supposed to be full of of emotion and import but it's treated like that yeah it's treated like that's a big like reveal oh my oh i could never have imagined he would be so evil i'm watching it just like it's just a storm of men in suits <laughs> all being introduced to each other, <laughs> then all talking, then all shouting, then all, and you're just, you're, and you're clearly supposed to be investing way more. For a while, I'm like, who's who now again? Do you think I you know. nine million important <laughs> figures in history? That's so true. <laughs> and they're all so self important in typical Christopher Nolan fashion and striking oh, around in this way that is so obnoxious. And then you have these two women thrown into the mix. You know, Ugh. the lovers slash wives of Oppenheimer, of, of course, all built around sex scenes. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're just like, holy Jesus. <laughs> Nolan is the most regressive ass who ever stepped. He really is. Undeni- the only actor who comes out of this well is, to me, is Robert Downey Jr. Oh, yeah, exactly. He, he, he does give. He's get, getting tons of praise because he's, yeah. he's pulled back all of his usual bigger mannerisms. I, I've always liked him. I always said he's. he's I love great. him. I love him. <laughs> actor but he has been coasting a lot you know he's in marvel movies and shit totally how, how hard is he gonna work <laughs> <laughs> but it, it has been kind of sad to see someone who was so in the zone for so long really giving great performances kind of coast so now he's back and he he does he gives everything he can to the strauss character it's really well done you bet and it's a kind of like kaiser soze situation yeah <laughs> And uh, he's fantastic. Everyone else is, and I blame Nolan because I love Killian Murphy, but I, oh, I agree. He's blank. <laughs> I don't know what he's bringing to this except he, a beautiful haunted face. He's supposed to be a kind of sort of sympathetic cipher, but I'm like, that can't be right because then that doesn't make sense of anything else that's going on. Mm-mm. And, so and mm. Poor Florence Pugh, who I think is, again, huge fan, you know, but... Yeah. But oh my the- God, she's got nothing to do except like have sex with Oppenheimer yes. and kill herself. <laughs> two, two classics of women on screen, you know? And then, and, 
And then Kitty Oppenheimer, who, of course, poor you know, Kitty is getting more and more poisonous as you go. She's already pretty poisonous. So it's like Oppenheimer's only attracted to, you know, com- <laughs> you know former communist or communist women who are poisoned. They seem uh, great, or, by oh, the way. Oh. They do seem great. <laughs> oh, my God. And, yeah. But she's she just gets steadily meaner and tighter and weirder as they go. She's a raging alcoholic. And they literally show her like practically hurling her toddler into his arms she just has no <laughs> desire to be a mother and they're they're making this writ large well from what i've read oppenheimer was not exactly the warm caring daddy so yeah. you're like, really we're gonna throw her under the bus on this are we okay but then suddenly later you get this whole tribute to the greatness of their marriage like we went through the fire together <laughs> yeah like, wait what i thought the whole point was she is completely internalizing all the toxins of Oppen- of being in the Oppenheimer world. I thought that's yes. what you were going for. She's like the truth teller, as the drunk woman always is, yeah. you know? But yeah. it, it it doesn't, it, she's so poorly directed. Like, I, again, I love Emily Blunt. Mm-hmm. I, I love a drunk caustic wife, truly <laughs> my favorite type of all time. And I laughed. Her, I mean, her scenes were so cliche. I was like, mm-hmm. what the fuck? Yeah. Like, they used to do this in the 50s, but it was better. Oh, like, I don't know. The, <laughs> the baby crying in the other room, and he's like, shouldn't you go to the baby? And then she goes and picks up a whiskey bottle. <laughs> 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 George and Martha with far less panache, you know, <laughs> so like, I don't know. It was, it was laughable is what it was. And Emily Blunt did not come out well. And I blame Nolan, you know, yeah. there was nothing about that, that the w- way it was directed to support her performance, a totally thankless, nonsensical role. The kid thing never comes back. They drop off mm. their child with some friends who are, they, the friends do yeah. kind of like lightly ask uh, Oppenheimer to commit treason <laughs> and re- re- reveal new clear secrets secrets to the right. russians but like the the you know being shitty parents never comes back it's just yeah. like there to be like kitty oppenheimer is a postpartum monster nothing mm-hmm. and then it goes nowhere i don't know yes exactly you don't see their kids again <laughs> i don't know yeah fugue um, having to like be, be shown having sex in a you know a kind of a fantasy sequence showing how poor oppie is being pilloried yeah there's a scene where you literally have jealous wives in the hearing where he's suddenly naked in his chair she's on top of him grinding and giving you know the kind of you know cat you know oh. what a cat eye to the the jealous wife who's hearing about their affair yeah, that's part of the testimony yeah and you're just like really it's <laughs> really? horrendous <laughs> like to be clear that is pure fantasy yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it what does it do for the Oppenheimer character? Like, absolutely nothing. Like, all right, he's not good with women. <laughs> not good with women, and, you know, everything he's being dredged up. And, and sure, I get that, but this is so Nolan. It just somehow seems this is Quint. I hate him. <laughs> I hated him before. Yeah. Uh, good reason. I'm sorry. Dark Knight Rises is just an evil film. It's an evil right-wing monster of a film. It's awful. Interstellar. Yeah. Nightmare. Sucks. Inception, literally the worst film ever, and the favorite of thirty-five percent of my students. <laughs> oh yeah, oh no, he's just revered. He's revered. Um, yeah, and I'm just like, what are you looking at? It's an ongoing mystery to me. I mean, somebody actually asked me, "What do you think people are seeing who like him?" And I'm like, I should really know this. I should be able to do a rhetorical study of Oppenheimer and really get him without being insulting. Just saying, this is what the appeal is. And I'm so blinded by my, my 
just absolutely instinctive hatred of everything. <laughs> that I literally can't come up with a coherent answer that doesn't immediately turn into a blizzard of insults that I don't want to do. I'm just. It's true. All I have are insults. I have ideas. Have. You're all insulting. <laughs> I think, oh, look, I forgive, I forgive the undergraduates. You know, they're just getting into film. And I think I know what they like about Inception is that it's, um, it's plot is complex and students, oh, yeah. you know, they mistake complexity of storytelling for like yeah. good storytelling or for something smart. Well, and I, um, and it's neither of those things. He does really old fashioned Hollywood hokum. But yeah. he dresses it up in the in the new like hyper choppy fancy editing and exactly flash complex flashback structure all that tricky stuff. But uh-huh. it's just laid over the old old cornball cliches. Yeah, <laughs> you bet, you so bet. That's apparently the winning formula here. It's so pitiful. Oh. This is the one and only time I wholeheartedly agreed with Richard Brody's review. Oh, I know. I, don't think I, was so, I, was I read it and I'm like, but but Brody's always wrong. I know. I'm starting to doubt my sanity, but um, he agreed. He called it like a history channel biopic that's less deep than a Wikipedia article article. with just like fancy editing. And I, I completely agree. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, it, it was, uh, it's tedious. It's, it's confusing. He does the Nolan back and forth between the timelines. Um, if you're not following really closely, I recommend, if you actually want to learn something about Oppenheimer, read a straightforward biographical article before you go. Or and then maybe you can follow. Yeah. He's so much weirder just looking. Than yeah, that's Killian so true. Murphy. Oh, he's just looks like, he really does look like a kind of postmodern he looks like so insectoid human crossed he looks really <laughs> amazingly and weird and if you'd gone with that my theory is only david lynch could have really done justice <laughs> <laughs> to, his, to, to his strange hubris and his you know there's no doubt he's brilliant but there's also this overweening sense of himself which of course makes martyrs you know that's yeah. a perfect formula for being a martyr you're so important <laughs> you that being crucified is the most satisfying thing that can happen to you i mean there's just there's so many more interesting things you could have done oh the be- weirds mobile <laughs> totally and also the setting like new mexico is completely wasted uh, mm-hmm. as a setting oh i know they did nothing with that i agree they did nothing do again like you said watch just watch twin peaks the you know the mm-hmm. reboot <laughs> The yeah. White Sands episodes will do far more for the feeling of like absolutely. the end of the world. <laughs> That's absolutely right. That's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. And it, it, it was, I don't know. I was really, so I was just in New Mexico and the whole, you know, Santa Fe and Los Alamos. I actually drove through Lanel, Los Alamos National Laboratories by mistake, trying to find a trailhead. <laughs> and they're, they're like so intense, you know, you have yeah. to give your ID. You can't take photos. I'm like, sorry, sir. Just trying to get to the. East Fork Trail. But um, <laughs> anyway, it's such an eerie place and it's so ripe with uh, like the resonance of past civilizations, you know, and like past apocalypses. Um, Bandelier mm-hmm. National Monument, which is right next to Los Alamos, is a place where that people, you know, abandoned. And there's mm-hmm. a lot more knowledge about these like civilizations now, which is really interesting. Like, all those places like Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde, there, um, there's evidence of so much violence. People mm. just murdered each other um, until they couldn't murder each other anymore. And there's kind of also evidence that the people who now live in uh, the Pueblos, places like Taos Pueblo, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. in the area, actually made a conscious choice not to live like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And they packed up 
and decided to make a more cooperative society. I'm thinking about a series of articles I read like three years ago in High Country News. There's like linguistic evidence for this. There's all kinds of like artistic, you know, things left to indicate this, which I think is so beautiful and amazing. (laughs) And it's, you know, in like a testament to like man's essentially violent nature, but also like the capacity to live differently. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw a bunch of good art. In a really brilliant film, there could have been ways to absolutely inform what was happening there again. But what do you get instead? Well, the Oppenheimer boys used to camp out there. Exactly. At the Los Alamos Boys School. Yeah. And it's like, so? Totally. (laughs) It's really, okay, now I can't, I have to say this. I'm so Mm. sorry. Um, So another person who used to go to the Los Alamos Boys School was this Mm -hmm. guy named John Crosby, who founded the Santa Fe Opera. Mm -hmm. And I love that, that like, to me, this, that, that place in the world, that area of Northern New Mexico is so like dichotomous, you Mm -hmm. know, the, the bomb was created there. And so was my favorite opera company that I love very much. (laughs) Shout out to Santa Fe Opera. But it's like, this is what this is what mankind is, you know, like sublime and completely destructive and who knows what's going to like win out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and also, I obviously, neither of those people, both of those people are coming from the East. They're both wealthy New Yorkers, both mm-hmm. from the Upper East Side. Mm-hmm. Um, Crosby's not Jewish. Oppenheimer's family is, you know, but there's like a kind of like colonialism. Mm-hmm. That's not even, it's not even dealt with at all. Oppenheimer just gets to say in the very sympathetic way, what, you know, the government asks, what should we do with Los Alamos? He's like, give it back to the Indians. Mm-hmm. Did he even say that? I don't even know. But, it, I, you know, I know either. there like, are so many. also a saying. That was also a kind of humorous saying. Oh, was it? Off. Yeah. In old, in you know, in the you know, uh, 50s, et cetera. You'll say, ah, give it back to the Indians. And it's, it's a oh, line in Giant. Do you know that movie Giant? Of course. Oh, my God. How could I ask? How the <laughs> fuck did I forget that? <laughs> Big fat Texas melodrama at a certain yeah. point. You know, the, the the father's built the biggest ranch in Texas into millions of acres and none of his kids want it. Yep. And he so he's finally he says he's, he's bemoaning this and his youngest daughter says, Ah, give it back to the Indians, Dad. You know, so it just became a joke. Oh God, you're so right. Back to the Indians for one thing. But and Giant, unlike this film, deals with that. Mm, yes. <laughs> so, Giant's like aware of the you know settler colonialism mm-hmm. and the violence of that. That's not even touched on. In I don't I don't know. It's it's it doesn't have a lot to say about a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like this was a very thin film, and I I've instantly forgotten it. <laughs> So. Yeah, no, I, 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 I didn't realize that you're bringing up points that I had totally, totally forgotten. <laughs> like I was, I, same thing. As soon as I see all the, soon as the minute I see those men in suits striding around meeting each other <laughs> and saying what are supposedly portentous things, I start checking out. I don't know. Yeah, and Nolan is really the king of that. He, he really is. Oh, it's gonna get all the Oscars. Uh, it's oh great. God, it'll win everything. <laughs> it will win every award. It has everything the Academy loves. He couldn't have gone, and he's you know he's he's campaigning already. He, he it's superb. He doesn't even need to do it, but he, he this is well. Oppenheimer is the most important person who ever lived. Yeah, he's destroy essentially be the father of destruction of all of us. Um, you know, so and uh, so by implication, my film is the most important film ever made. Yeah, and it's all this kind of. God, self-aggrandizing. I just yet bland is his specialty. Yeah, it's always big yet oddly bland and empty with a lot, but busy. I, it's just a, an aesthetic that makes me crazy. It makes me want to scream. 
Yeah, yeah, I uh, <laughs> um, yeah. I can't. I I just don't think it has. It doesn't really have any insight about um our the way our world has changed, or even like what motivates human beings to these kinds of acts, these kinds of mm. acts of creation. It seems like it's in the ether. It seems mm. like we're watching like a 19th century vision of genius as a spirit that like mm. inhabits someone. Mm. And maybe that is Nolan's opinion. Um, but again, that seems at odds with the moral questions that are explicitly brought up in dialogue <laughs> in the various hearings, you know? Mm. So I, I'm the film's point of view is murky to me. Yes, I totally agreed. Totally, yeah. agreed. and I have read an awful lot of reviews of, that are that are in favor of the film, love the film, and I just keep being frustrated because I can't seem to find anything that's insightful. They'll all claim it's a very insightful film, but somehow they don't articulate what's insightful about it. Yeah, word. <laughs> it only seems insightful if you literally don't know. Like there, there are hilarious tweets being you know sent around where people like, so did they really drop the bomb? Did that really happen? I mean, things like this. You're like, oh, is that really true or a joke? Yeah. But if you're at, at a super level of ignorance, you don't know who Oppenheimer is. You don't know yeah. about gay bomb. You don't know about anything. Maybe it's yeah. insightful. But if you know anything and not like I know much, I know basics. Yeah. I, I was just sitting there going, I, you're, this is the most, and everyone's making the most obvious argument. We have to create the bomb because... You know, Hitler. Nazis are trying to Hitler's trying to create the bomb. We have to race to eat the. Uh, it'll shorten the war. Blah, blah. You know, it's just all the most rote takes get trotted out. Uh, totally. In, in such a, yeah, it's boring. Boring it's as hell. You're right. So boring. It, you're you're absolutely right. It's like I remember this uh, in high school history. You yeah. know, these were the debates that were introduced to us, yeah. and it's like you're writing a high school history essay where you need to like debate it. <laughs> And the the high school level uh, debates are the ones, or you know, points are the ones you're given by the film. So, and it would be even like, are we coming out at the end just saying this? This should never have been done. Regardless, it just shouldn't have been done. No, we're just coming out going, wow, Oppenheimer sure was sad. Yeah, <laughs> and apparently he got destroyed, and apparently he's going to be our destruction eventually. But really, is that's not making any. You know, there's no still no sense that we just shouldn't have done that. At all. Exactly. Exactly. No one will take that stance. No. In the in the film. Yeah. 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 It seems it seems inevitable, and it, you're right. And it's also like a, eclipsed the real question by the story of this like sad, tortured genius. Yeah. So mm. anyway, there there's an image that might help us transition. Mm. Oh please. When, <laughs> which is when I was at Oppenheimer at like noon on a Friday mm -hmm. and this group of like seven women who were my age, they were about 40, were dressed head to toe in pink carrying wine tumblers <laughs> and they burst into the wrong theater by mistake <laughs> in the middle of Oppenheimer. And it, it's such a beautiful image. <laughs> If I could talk about the Barbenheimer experience, it's let's that. Please. Let's yeah. do that right now and then go to Barbie. Yes, perfect. Totally. Like if, you know, if Oppenheimer gets you down, like I love that Barbie has penetrated the universe of Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> because to me, it always had. I seem to be the only one who's like constantly going, but no, everyone sensed immediately, didn't they? That they, they're totally related. Oh, yes. I mean, initially, sure. It seems like of all the incongruous, you know, ways to, to open the two, two of the biggest films of the year, both on the same day and both apparently like completely dichotomously opposed. But then, <laughs> as soon as you go, wait, Cold War, 
Yep. One is the nightmare vision of the literal kind of nightmare vision of what was unleashed. One is, you know, the cover. Like, no, America the, America becomes a superpower, becomes the, the, this com- consumerist dream society, rich beyond almost the wildest dreams of peoples in other, uh, in other countries. Yeah. And what do we make of it? A bunch of stuff. We just make a bunch of stuff. So everyone can have lots of stuff. And Barbie is just the epitome of the kind of stuff, the plastic doll that comes directly out of so much World War II era stuff, including... You know, the people who are the Mattel founders, this is like a factoid that I adore. It's Ruth Handler, who's in the the Barbie film, mm-hmm. and her husband, Matt. I think his name is Matt. Or is it Elliot? Is it, is it, I forget his name is Matt something and Elliot. Anyway, there's two guys, and then yeah. their names become Mattel. forget their names. Yeah. Um, her name is Matt and Elliot. I don't know who her husband is, though. It's, I, think, I think her husband's Elliot. Yeah. Okay. And then it's Matt something, and he's obviously yeah. Elliot Handler. But at any rate, what was I saying? <laughs> Oh, they, their initial business before they get into toys, which is starts booming in the 40s, is is even more than I'd had before, is they're, they're taking the new plastics, which are lucite and plexiglass and making furniture out of them. Mm. And then they turn that into into doll furniture and then they move into toys. So so plexiglass was being was being deployed in wartime manufacture in brand new ways. So it was a huge part of that whole, you know, when Europe's at war. They need them for submarines. They need them for aircraft. And so plexiglass becomes this huge part of the war effort. So <laughs> into, their products are intimately tied with warfare. And but, they come right out of it and go into making these dolls that in their extravagance, in their outfits, in their dream houses and cars and all that paraphernalia, it's just so much about plastics and moving into a new world of of. of consumer joy that's very ephemeral, but also addictive so you always you know the whole business is built on you're always going to want more friends of barbie and ken more more stuff more outfits more everything oh you bet um so that whole so the whole way they relate to what came out of allied victory especially united states um as the top superpower they're they're so intimately connected barbie and the bomb it's it's perfect it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so many good ones. And my favorite my favorite is still somebody somebody <laughs> some genius <laughs> wrote, Will I be able to understand Oppenheimer if I don't see Barbie first? <laughs> there's something beautiful in that. <laughs> so good. You you have to see them first. I I don't I so thoroughly enjoyed Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> it was a wonderful experience. I was in a theater full of people in pink of all ages, <laughs> all genders. Um, a lot of a lot of guys came as Ken. <laughs> wow, really? Oh yeah, like denim vest, no shirt, neon ah. shorts, and high tops. Like God bless, they were amazing. Oh, um, it was just great. It was great. Uh, it was hilarious. Um, I, I, it was to me. It was heartrending. I very much loved Barbies as a child. Like anyone who knows me can tell you, mm-hmm. <laughs> I had like a metric shit ton of Barbies and I all had their Barbies stuff. as well. I inherited <laughs> some of the. I inherited the original from my older sisters. No, oh, really? Got, the fifties oh, yeah. one. Ooh. So I had one of the real, the black haired um, original Barbie. That oh my. 
God. Which was, I'm sorry, that was a beautiful design. That was really I, I know, beautiful. she was gorgeous. <laughs> she was gorgeous. Um, but then I also wound up with a, a version of stereotypical Barbie. I forget what her real name was. And then, you know, I had, I even had like Malibu Stacy, I think it was. Hell Stacey. to the, yeah, the Malibus were great. Yeah. That was a genius era. Oh, I yeah. Bar, I, had the, I had a bunch of it. So I was into it for a while too, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, I still have dreams about their clothes. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, and like playing with them. I mostly played Marshall Fields. I'm from Chicago. So uh-huh. like, you know, I would like make like store, you know, departments for mm-hmm. the for the clothing. And I still dream about this one like rainbow leopard print of <laughs> like Barbie and the Rockers jumpsuit one of them had. I, they were so vivid and delicious. I they don't know. Were. The little clothes yeah. were really wild. And they, Amazing. And they really, they really sp- figured out how to package and sell them so well so that you really craved them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And I'm glad they didn't totally shit on her. I would have been heartbroken. Like, I can't take it. I'm well aware of all the feminist critiques mm. of Barbie, and I agree with most of them. But mm-hmm. also, <laughs> she brought me a lot of joy. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And I think they I think they acknowledge that. So, yeah. Well, I, I mean, was so delighted it was funny. I just... You couldn't, so you couldn't have, it was such funny. a smart approach. I just had to give it to Greta Gerwig, and I'm not even a particular fan. In fact, I'm not a fan. I'm the yeah. only woman in the world who hated Little Women. Ah. Little Women. I just don't even get me started. Yeah. But um, but I was just like, oh, she she took she took a. I actually felt envy. I'm like that was actually really smart. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And you know, of course, you can be like, this is a, a total low. In most cases, it is. This whole making movies that are just built around a product you know, like air and you know, the whole bunch came out just in 2023, Blackberry and Tetris and other Whoa, several. what? Oh, Seriously? so many. Oh, this is oh. a whole new thing. This is a way oh. to get, you know, your, your project greenlit is to take us any successful, super successful product and build some sort of crazy ass narrative around it. Nice. So given that you have to do this, but by the way, I have to admit, it's not that much farther from the basic, you know, <laughs> crass mentality of Hollywood all along. It's always been, how do you sell more? So, you know, just an example, you know, poor Val Luton, who's a genius producer of horror films in the forties, literally gets told we've, we've test marketed these titles and they're successful titles that people will go see. So you have to make a movie called cat people, or you have to make a yeah. movie called I walk with a zombie. And he just hated it. Here he is, this erudite, super well-read dude. And he's just got to take these lurid titles because the titles themselves made people say, I would go see anything called I walk with a zombie. Yeah. So it's not like it was a, you know, a beautiful idealistic world before. And now, we've, now we're really be, becoming bad. It's, always been bad of course but but that you take an assignment like this again been kicking around hollywood for ages now and and are smart enough to just go how can you be she has to do like 10 things (laughs) obviously there's going to be products sold so the whole thing looks just delicious you know it's production design just beyond belief the amount of detail is staggering yeah and you've also got to be affectionate because there's all these barbie lovers there's so many people who are going just for nostalgia's sake Plus, you've got to be somehow entertaining. Plus, you've got to negotiate the whole, well, anti, based on a, a basic feminist take that this is about as deplorable a representation of women as you can get. Uh-huh. And you've got to f- find a way to be pro-feminist. You know, you've got to do, like, all of these different jobs at the same time that are impossible. Yeah. And she, she just finds a way to be hilarious at the beginning that gets you so into it that, to me, it's, it starts palling pretty seriously. The second half. 
just because really? it gets very oh yeah well it gets so you know kind of centrist liberal slightly toothless feminism kind of there's a lot of you go girl feminists you know you can be anything you want to be and, you know, <laughs> this, they're taking over the supreme court in barbie land and you know there's kind of a, a lax topical stuff going on and so there was stuff at the end I didn't like, but it sounds like you found it genuinely moving. I was like, yeah. I found the weird. mom. I'm hurting the, a little. Okay. Yeah. I, f- I found the mom really moving. Um, I let, I like the fact. So, well, first I guess let's start at the beginning. Like okay. one of the things I think they do really well is <laughs> illustrate what life would a live action, real world Barbie dreamland would be, would like. be like. That's the best part. You get it's into so the, great. the heart of Barbie land. Like, what would Barbie live like? Really yeah. Well done. Really well done. And she, she, you know, her feet really are up on tippy toes mm-hmm. the whole time. And um, all of her food, you know, none of her, none of the, her cups are filled with real liquid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. um, so that is so pleasurable to watch. Um, you and go then, to of course, the, the, ins- beach. the inspiration <laughs> of Ken, you know, and Alan and all that. I have never loved Ryan Gosling more. I am so oh, not a fan of his. He was either. brilliant. He's he was perfect. brilliant. And supposedly, yeah. according to his account, he's the one. He said he went looking for his daughter's. She has Barbies and Kens, his little daughter. Yeah. And he, found, he, you know, she, so he found the Ken doll out in the yard, like covered in dirt and under a rotting <laughs> lemon. <laughs> we called Greta Gerwig and said, I think you have to tell this man's story. <laughs> He's always discarded because he's so boring and bland. It was wonderful. That's so funny. He is great. I don't even know how to describe the tone of his comic Mm. timing. It's brilliant. He does this like blankness. um, But with, I don't know, this like quiet, understated, like he wants to feel self-important, but is usually afraid to like fully express that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i i don't know he's so fucking funny and mm-hmm. uh, obviously the meme that has come out of this is um ken's job is beach <laughs> <laughs> like he's not a lifeguard he's not whatever because you know on the box it says like beach ken <laughs> <laughs> and that all the kens just sort of all these the later variations, you know, there's <laughs> of various races, et cetera, and they all just hang around the beach. They have nowhere to live because Barbie right. lives. Barbie lives in the dream house, and Ken just hangs out by the, you know, all the Kens just by the plastic waves that are always just about to roll in, but of course never do. <laughs> totally, that's wonderful. But they all just stand around like. You know, vaguely discontented, but they don't. They know they they are trying to get Barbie's attention because that's the only way they they come to any kind of life. That's the only way. Clearly, they're ever brought into play. It's yeah. in, in relation to Barbie. So they're all vying with each other in this kind of empty-headed, vaguely vaguely unhappy way that they don't know what to do with. They threaten to beach each other off, and that's <laughs> some sort of some sort of threat. And they don't understand the implication. It's great. It's so yeah, good. And like, the, there's another way. Like at the end of the night, Barbie throws this like fabulous party every and then, night. It's right. every night. Every <laughs> night. And Ken wants to stick around and like stay over. And she's like, "Well, no, it's girls' night." And he like he knows there's you know like little kids playing with a Barbie and Ken. They know there's some kind of innuendo window to mm. ken staying the night but barbie's like and then what will we do and ken's like i'm not really sure I'm not- <laughs> he does have wonderful pauses while, while you see his brain try to commute compute things before he responds that are very yes. nice time 
he's very good at comedy. I gotta have, I gotta give it to him. He was hysterical, yeah. and he, I mean, he was excellent. There was like a lot of dancing, a lot of <laughs> choreographed, hilarious dances. Yeah. He's he's really good. I mean, he came up in like the Mickey Mouse Club, so it makes sense. He can like bust a move, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah. it was like such a joy to watch yeah. him. And Margot Robbie is wonderful. Great, yeah, yeah, very convincing as a as a real life Barbie. And then when as so Barbie starts to have dark thoughts mm-hmm. and Eileen's uh, favorite line and mine too <laughs> she's throwing this big rager as she does every night and then mid dance she's like do you guys ever think about dying <laughs> really beautiful existential crisis barbie was really that was very inspired very totally inspired. totally and as her like realizations dawn um she's she's very good at playing sort of like vulnerable and crushed you know mm-hmm. because she and- just you know thinks of herself as every little girl's or every 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 female child at least up to a certain age's favorite then she, when she gets to the real world she discovers she's despised by many yes <laughs> and she does she looks so crushed and she's standing there in some outlandish cowgirl outfit you know <laughs> spanking pink cowboy jumpsuit thing that she's wearing yeah you bet you bet and the conceit is that there's been like a rip in the continuum between barbie land and the real world and what i love about this film is yeah that's absurd but they don't get too far into those technicalities Hmm. it's just like you know it's just a kid's movie and or like that plot level it's I don't know. It's sometimes my main qualm with movies is like too much plot. I don't think this has too much plot. I think it's the perfect amount of plot. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm not. Don't quite agree with you. I, I thought okay. there was a little much. I I would have loved to just stay in Barbie Land and work out. You know, as soon as it got to be every little girl is tied. You know, you know every doll is tied to the person who played. That starts to get very Pixar plotty for me. I'm just like, do we have to? Do All right. To, when do we have to meet the the First spoiler, it's not the the girl they initially think as a teenager that they think is the person who who played with the Barbie and gave her dark thoughts because she's getting into the dark teen mode. It's her mother. So yeah. the daughter is Sasha and she's played by Ariana Greenblatt. Is that right? I have it here. Um, mm-hmm. And the mother is America Ferrara. Yeah. yeah Ariana Greenblatt is Sasha. Okay. Um, and it turns out it's the mother. And that is funny when the, you see the mother who's a talented artist is drawing, she works at Mattel, is drawing, um, uh, what is it? Um, I li- like, isn't it Existential Crisis Barbie? Or, no, it's um, called something else. It's, it's Intrusive Thoughts of Death Barbie. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and they are these beautiful drawings she's making. <laughs> but anyway, that's how that somehow, it's not explained, thank God. But yeah. yeah. I guess you're right. My fear was that there was going to be even more. That would be very Pixar, you know, just layering story after story of how the world works. And it's like, do we really need to know how the real world world works that much? I don't think so. But there is a really funny thing of meeting weird Barbie, who's the roughed up Barbie. What happens when people play rough (laughs) with their Barbie? That's Kate McKinnon. Yep. You know, who lives in exile in a bizarro, you know, <laughs> messed up house and she has chopped hair and marker on her face and is always in a, a painful looking split. That was very funny. Hilarious. Um, who has to give her the choice of pink high heel or Birkenstock, you know, stay in Barbie land fantasy or find the real world. So that was all handled very, again, as long as it stayed funny, it was for me, it was just working. It was working really well. Yeah, it, it gets more. It does get more and more solemn, and to me, confused. Keeps trying to make it more and more like I don't. I don't even know that montage stuff at the end. Is it just like 
Barbie is some sort of <laughs> progressive uniter of all mothers and daughters throughout time or something. That was a little gross. Barbie has to like, uh, Rhea Perlman is her creator and Barbie wants to become human yeah. and has to like experience this montage of what it's like to be human. Is that the one you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, that one. And it's, isn't it all mothers and daughters or? It's all uh, women. It is all women. I don't know if it's mothers and daughters. There's a lot, at least a lot of mother and daughter action that made me just go, what I, What are we doing here? Because it starts so funny. It does funny grandiosity by borrowing from 2001. Yeah. You know, so you have you know, this creationist image of a gigantic Barbie showing up next to the cliffs, basically, on the sand. She's 20 feet in the air. And she's awesome. And just just that very grandiosity, of course, is funny. But of course, is also wonderful because it's just original Barbie is this iconic, you know, figure in her black and white striped bathing suit and everything. Yeah. Um, so the artwork works so wonderfully. But at the end, you can just for me, you could I could feel a kind of struggle happening. Like, OK, how do we get out of this now? We've been allowed yeah. to make fun of Mattel. Uh-huh. So, you know, we've had Will Smith playing the CEO of Mattel and <laughs> his usual kind of blank eyed, supposedly idealistic, but really crass kind of dolt. You know, so there's been a lot of, you know, joking about that. That was nice. At least, you know, you get to take a few shots. They're very soft, but you do. But in the end, it's all got to be elevated somehow. Well, so but they, I, the final scene redeems it, does it not? Well, that last line. Yeah. That is a good last line. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we won't spoil it. Maybe we won't tell the last line. It does have okay. a very redeeming last line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a kind of icky section in the end that often happens in American films, which is maybe why I'm hypersensitive to it. If you're ever going to have a sellout of a project where you now have to say the conventional conformist thing, to uh -huh. take back all the cooler things you did before, it's going to be right in that heading toward, you know, the, the climax and denouement. It's right there. You're going to have to tack on something um, that appeases. And it just seems like in the end, it's like, okay, this is, this is stuff that, I don't know, maybe it's Mattel, maybe it's Gerwig. They, I don't know, some combination of those creative forces. She's the writer-director with her filmmaker husband, Noah um, Baumbach. Mm -hmm. You don't know where. Eventually, they're not going to tell, um, you know, where the where, what the, what the negotiations were. I, you know, she makes it she makes it sound like Mattel was pretty good. There were things they didn't like, mm -hmm. but she would she she claims she would hang tough on them. And Mattel would be like, well, OK, let's let you go with this. And it helped that Margot Robbie was also a producer and yeah. wanted to go with Gerwig all the time. Yeah. But, you know, Mattel wanted wanted, for example, the removal of a of a scene with where there's a Barbie has just come to the real world and had her first rude awakenings like sexual harassment and women are running anything. Women run everything in Barbie Land. Keep in mind, every there's a million professional Barbies. So <laughs> everything from president to, you know, construction worker to doctor to everything. Uh -huh. Um but she runs into at a bus stop an old an, an old woman, quite an old woman, at least in her eighties, is sitting there and Barbie looks at her and says, you're so beautiful. And the, the older woman says, I know, in this kind of cute way. And, um, Mattel and didn't like that? What? Oh, they Mattel didn't want that. Mattel objected to that? Oh, they I love like, that, that that's the most like, upsetting scene to them. If only she'd said what on what grounds. I guess they just said it was extraneous. It wasn't doing anything. But I don't know Ooh. if there was And she said, no, it's the heart of the whole movie. We don't, do that. We don't know that scene. We might as well not do, not do the movie. She was she was super adamant. She claims anyway. So that that's the only thing she's naming. 
is saying Mattel didn't want that, but they let me do it when I really made a huge case about it. That is fascinating. See, I found that movement actually very moving. Did you find that cheesy? A little cheesy. All right. This is what we're (laughs) waiting for. You know, I'm just mean. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, because it's true. That's the thing that is inexcusable. You can't be old if you're a woman. You just can't. I guess that's true. Yeah. And, and, and America Ferreras. Like, if you were going with the world of Barbie and the world Barbie lives in, would she have that reaction? There's no old woman Barbie. So uh, well, exactly. I was just sitting there going, why would Barbie be suddenly like, I've never even seen a creature like you. My whole standards of my world is me. So why would I think you're so beautiful? It's just well, she's having her. new feelings. She's having she's existential crisis, Barbie. You know, yeah. like all these new all these things are new to her. I thought it was important because that that is an you know you got to get in the criticism of the doll there. I thought that was far more effective than all of the than the speech by the America Ferrera's daughter. Oh, I hated that. You know, I so that was and terrible. Yeah, there's a there's a whole long scene about how it's impossible to be a woman. That America yeah. Ferraro as Gloria has to make. Oh yeah, I, I heard America Ferrera's speech. Yeah, I also yeah. thought that was like belabored. Yeah. People love that. It's just about the you know the many double standards. Um, but there's an earlier one where the teenage oh. daughter rips Barbie apart at the lunch table. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, and I that you know to me that was fine. It was a caricature of our, <laughs> calling Barbie fascist, and Barbie has a really good reply. <laughs> like, how can I be a fascist if I don't control the trains <laughs> or something about the like right. uh, the economy? The I don't economy. know. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. But they had to have someone be the spokesperson for, you know, the yeah. feminist rejection of Barbie, which yeah, is, for the hard line comes up in the sixties, basically sixties, seventies is a huge rejection of Barbie. Um, yeah, so somebody has to say it. It's interesting that they decide to put it in the mouth of an already angry teenage girl. That's also a way of reducing it, but all right. Somebody True. has to say it, so they give it to her. It's not inspired writing. Anytime, in other words, anytime you get to these points, it seems to me like the writing suffers. Huh. So I, I certainly thought the America America Ferraro speech was supposed to be a climactic speech and everyone's quoting it. It's just some of the worst a, writing in the film. It's yeah, crazy. I totally agree. It's but, not great. It's not great. But I, I'm I'm with Greta Ger- Gerwig. I will defend the old woman scene. I think that one's good. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it it kind of like shows, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it tells a little bit, but at least it's not like wordy. Yeah, you're right. It's not someone being very literal. You know? Yeah, it's a it's a moment. Of the street. You're right about that. Um, yeah. So, but you know, it certainly seems like for me, it would have been hilarious and wonderful if they would have done something which they never would have done. So I sat there knowing they wouldn't do it. The <laughs> actual roots of Barbie are so fascinating. You know, she comes from this <laughs> this German doll <laughs> that's based <laughs> on a comic strip character in this in this right wing sensationalist like lurid new tabloid called Build, and and her name was Lily, so they called her Build Lily, and they based this doll on it. She's a call girl. And she she lives off the the largesse of her various escorts, um, male escorts who are often old, much older. <laughs> and and she has so many, but she has wonderful fashion sense. So she always looks, has all these outfits and looks great. And they, quote, make her the star of every bar. And she was kind of a novelty gag gift. Um, and then, of course, you know, they found ways to amend her. Um, she got quite popular um, to amend her for, you know, a young population that various countries wanted to license her. You know, Ruth Handler wasn't the first one to to lock onto this, the potential of this doll, but she certainly makes the biggest splash with her version. So if you look at original Barbie, especially the black haired Barbie, she has very, she has very heavy eyeliner. She has blue eyeshadow. 
Um, you know, the, and obviously she's got the wildly hourglass figure, very boobacious <laughs> figure, which is part of the feminist complaint. Highly <laughs> unrealistic <laughs> body expectations come off of a Barbie doll. Um, but she look, has a wonderful nighttime glamour quality, which really was part of the first Barbies. You could get a blonde or a black haired one, but the black haired one's very memorable. Yeah. Um, so that, and that comes right off this much more scandalous, sexy <laughs> um, doll that then gets repurposed for kids. Um, so that would have been wonderful to have any allusion to that. And there's just none. When you see the Ruth Handler they've got, she's this very, she's like this very grandmotherly figure sitting in a kitchen. It's all very, very domestic. And, <laughs> and anything about plastics, <laughs> you know, used in yeah. warfare and, and all those killer things. You just know, of course, that was never going to get off. There was no way Gerwig was going to get that passed up. I mean, it was just my... Mm. I, too often, I think, think of what a cool movie this could be if only you could do these things that you couldn't possibly do. And that yeah. was just, you know, that was just yeah. more of it. There's no way that was going to make it in. Oh, yeah. That, no, that's an incredible history. In incredible. Yeah. yeah. It, <laughs> but, you know, it, it pulls off a lot. Um, Ken, it's very funny when they first come to Los Angeles. Barbie mm. and Ken, like, break into the real world. And Ken discovers patriarchy, which he mostly mistakes for horses. Yeah. <laughs> saying when I found out it wasn't mostly about horses. The end, I, I lost, lost interest. I lost interest. Yes. He says at one point, I'm just going to nip into the library and see if they have any books on trucks. He just yeah. has some instinct that trucks have something to do with it, but mainly horses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Ken brings patriarchy back to Barbie land and that introduces some more stakes for the you know the adventures of the Barbies is that they've got to wrestle um Barbie land back from the Kens it is very funny how they get the how they do that um so we'll let you there there are two, at least two musical numbers yeah. I'm just Ken is probably the more more beloved so far but yeah yes. they're all good it's so good um so I don't know it's like pretty riotous pretty pretty freaking fun I would see it again yeah, and, I, and there's you can tell that there's just a lot built into the design and the soundtrack and stuff that there are more there are more jokes and illusions and stuff. It's really very densely put together. You feel like for for something that's just hilarious and riotous mostly, exactly. um, just like her the repeated singing of the song. The closer I am to fine. Yes, by the Indigo Girls. Yes, the Indigo Girls. <laughs> yes. So Barbie, every time she's on a road trip, is. <laughs> Singing the closer I am to find, <laughs> such a, you know, such a woman anthem. <laughs> it's and, then Ken, and then Ken, when he becomes, you know, patriarchy obsessed, I forget what he changes it to. He changes it's it to like some, sublime or something. Some something guy, from the 90s that I should know, but I don't know. Anthem that I didn't know, and I meant to look up too. I forgot. But there is a very funny scene late in the movie where. Where the Kens all insist on on serenading the Barbies, doing guitar solos and singing intense songs at the bar at the Barbies <laughs> on the beach, and every Barbie has this horrifying, like, still polite look on her face, trying to hold a look of like appreciation on her face when, of course, she's suffering intensely, and that's very, very funny. Totally, and that's the Barbies' plan to like distract the Kens yeah. is to, yeah, to like. Them do that. <laughs> Another one that made me like absolutely roar was one Barbie approaches a Ken and says, um, uh, uh, can you, <laughs> or like, he's, I don't know. It's like movie night. And Ken's like, um, Oh no, wait, Barbie. I'm sorry. I'm losing my mind. Barbie like tells the other Barbies, tell mm. them that you've never seen the Godfather. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
all the ways you can distract men for lengthy interludes. That's right. And one of them is that. It's, and but- super essentializing about the genders but in hilarious ways that you can't help recognizing (laughs) so fucking funny can you start the movie over and just talk through the whole thing thing? really really funny parts so you know i'm i'm a huge admirer of comedy probably more than most I, i i just tend to think that's a real test of absolute skill i mean people are gonna laugh or they aren't gonna laugh it's very absolute like what's funny what's not to me anyway so it just i that i'm even more impressed by that for that reason like she really spun gold out what could have been just a deadly project just the worst possible project it's already essentially a barbie ad you know there's just already a huge barbie revival all things barbie this is going to be a bonanza for mattel there's no question about it it already is already is um so you know you you can deplore it all you want but you got to admit if you're gonna have to do these crass commercial things in movies and you certainly are in america if you want to be in mainstream film she found a way to do really remarkably good stuff so that seems more impressive to me than anything any of the kind of saggy (laughs) fat self-important not that insightful stuff that went on in oppenheimer so yeah i'm totally team barbie if i've got to pick a team Barbie. Oh hell yeah! No question. No question. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Final thoughts. Final jokes. Final favorite moments. I guess we're just excited that people are excited to go to the movies. It is true. It, and if someone brought up a point, it wasn't. I was reading. I hadn't even been thinking. You know, the the, the WGA SAG after a strike, which is so important, is going on. And somebody said, you know, if only they would have worked up a boycott. And, and lined up actors and, you know, somehow persuaded people not to go to these films. It could have really oh. turned the tide. And, you know, like, even even while you acknowledge that, God, if that could have happened, which seems unlikely, but let's say it could have. Yeah. That's true. So, but, so I feel so torn because, on the other hand, it's so exciting to have something happening in American film. You bet. <laughs> You bet. You can't help just be like, oh, if you love if you love genre film in America, just just film in America, like the real big, like, wow, can the I movies. go and have my senses overwhelmed? Please, can I have excitement again at the movies? This is it. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to not feel a little overjoyed. Oh, yeah, <laughs> let's celebrate. Not- yeah, let's, let's just celebrate Barbenheimer. It. We don't know. We, this might, for all we know, this might be the last hurrah that we look back on is remember that historic period when the no! films. But of course, I don't want to think that. I want to think there's a way for it to survive, you know. Yeah. For those of us who love Hollywood, yes, we know it's crass and capitalist and all these other things. There's <laughs> nothing clean. There's nothing that fully escapes. No. And I can't help it. I, my whole life is about loving the best of Hollywood genre film. So this is yeah this is this is a it's been years since we had this big a thrill i think at the movies where everyone's talking about it yeah i yeah let let barbie lead the way that's yeah. what i say <laughs> uh, let's just go with this just, just a bit anyway yeah, yeah let's let's revive the movies if we can for sure all for right sure. i think that's it i think that's 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 it for our episode which we are calling um barbie and oppenheimer how we learn to stop worrying and love the doll Thank you, dear listeners, and of course, triple thanks to our subscribers who keep us in enriched uranium and and neon-colored rollerblades. If you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider signing up for Patreon for all the Filmstock content instead of just half. Follow News the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or X, as it's now known. 
Uh, yeah. Okay. Join us in two weeks for more fantastic film suck conversation. And until then, thank you again so much for listening. Bye now. Bye. <laughs>